Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome back to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ference, and this is episode number 21. Our guest this week is a close friend of mine, and we recorded this interview back in the end of 2020, so it will be nice to get this one out there. I think y'all will enjoy it. Uh, So I've been fighting trying to find a topic this week for my opening. I have a long list, but none of them were really calling out to me for today. So I was just going to sit down and pick one out and see if I can draw some inspiration, and then I had a thought. Golf. Not like, I think I'll go play golf. I think maybe I'll talk about golf. So I think for fun, I'm going to freestyle this a little bit. Uh, Hopefully at the end, it's not total nonsense. So here we go. I am a significantly average player on my best day, but I still enjoy getting out and hacking around a golf course. I think golf or any game where you are competing solo has a lot of parallels to building a career. Here's the thing about golf. You're out on the course with other people but you're each on your own path. You're playing your own ball. And most likely, you're really only competing against yourself. Obviously, you could be playing in a club, but most golfers play recreationally, and they're always comparing their current score to their last score. And the most challenging part about these solo competition sports is they require a mental toughness that I think most other sports don't. Don't get me wrong. I played team sports growing up, and there is definitely a mental toughness involved, But at the end of the game, you say, we lost or we won. And you can beat yourself up over your specific bad plays, but so can everybody else on the team. In sports like golf, singles tennis, running, or even bowling, (laughs) sorry, I just had to to get bowling in there, uh, you walk away saying, I, I missed that putt, or I pushed that shot right. This is why golf is such a challenging sport, and it's why people walk off the golf course and stop at the shop on the way home and buy a new driver because people don't like to accept the individual weight of the outcome of the day. They want to blame the equipment or the wind or whatever it is, but it wasn't them. Some of the best golf advice I've ever received is to think about just the current shot. Focus on the immediate task at hand. You can't think about breaking your low score mid-round and expect that to happen. You'll feel the pressure and the weight of it. You need to hit each shot for what it is and go for the best outcome. And if you string together a few good shots, you're probably looking at a birdie opportunity, which is good if you're not a golfer, birdie birdie equals good. Now, if you hit a bad shot, you've got to let it go. People make mistakes. You can't carry that frustration into the next shot because your body will be tense and your mind won't be focused on the current shot and you'll probably hit another bad shot. Trust me. Now, when you step up to hit a shot, you need to visualize what you'd like to do with that ball. You can't just walk up to it and swing at it. As with many sports, you need to practice and build muscle memory so that when you play, your body just reacts. That's what's happening when you visualize what shot you're going to hit, then you swing and the muscle memory will execute. So if you're thinking about hitting the green and you're an average golfer, you'll probably hit the green or you'll be close enough to satisfy your skill level. But if you're worried about hitting the groundskeeper who's watering 20 yards to the left of the green, you'll probably actually hit it towards him because you're lacking confidence and you're focusing on a negative outcome. So by this point, you've probably seen some of the parallels between a career and a game like golf, or I don't know, maybe not, and you skipped ahead a few minutes. But here's what the takeaway should be from this nonsensical golf rambling. Building a successful career will require mental toughness. It will require you to take responsibility for your actions and to not dwell on your defeats or your almosts. You've got to prepare for your opportunities and do the best that you can. Taking every task and every goal on one at a time, 
focusing on and visualizing the outcome that you want. These are the things that will separate successful people from unsuccessful people the same way they separate a recreational golfer from a PGA pro. This week's guest is veteran recording engineer, mixer, and golf enthusiast, Jesse String. Jesse began his recording career at the legendary Henson Studios and eventually went freelance after being plucked from their staff by producer Patrick Leonard. He would go on to work for a wide range of artists such as the Jonas Brothers, Leonard Cohen, the band Perry, Ziggy Marley, and he's even managed to spend some time with the purple one himself, Prince. Jesse's known for his good vibes in the studio and his ability to allow the artists to get their creative ideas out quickly and easily during a session. And he's also been mentioned by, I think, four guests on this show already. So that basically makes him progressions famous. So welcome to the show, Jesse String. How's it going, Yay, Jesse? Thanks. Good. Nice to be here. I feel so uh, official now. Yeah. <laughs> That's what the intro's for. You know, the one thing that's not in the intro is how we met, which I think is a really good story that I'm going to tell whether you like it or not. Yes. So first <laughs> first day working at the Berkeley College Studios, I'm like going in to clean at like 6.30 in the morning. It's my first day all by myself. I'm unlocking the door and I like creep into Studio C and I'm about to turn the lights on and there's like this silhouette of a person like sleeping across the chairs, like laid out like a bed. <laughs> And I didn't know what to do, so I just, I didn't want to wake that person up. So I just shut the door, went over to the office to like, what do I call somebody? Why is there some kid sleeping in the studios? And then I see Jesse Strings ID on the little key hanger, which is how they knew who was in what studio. And I was like, well, I guess he's allowed to be in there. I guess it's fine. So, you know, just sleeping in studios yeah, all the time. That was, that's true. When you're there at four in the morning and you got to, no, I guess it would be like six in the morning. You got a nine a.m. class. No point in going home. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, those are the days, man. Yeah. Did you sleep in the hallway one time? There was a lot of you sleeping yeah. in odd places. I think at one point in the music production engineering wing, I even wrote my name on the wall and said, "This is my spot," because I just basically never left there. But you no, know, at one point, so I don't know why. For some reason, at the beginning of my senior year, I decided to shave my beard, and then I wasn't going to shave again until I graduated. So in September, I started. So I didn't trim it or anything. And so by mid-spring, I mean, it was pretty gnarly. And I definitely remember sleeping in line, waiting for studio time. And uh, the, the security guard at Berkeley waking me up, thinking I was a homeless person, saying, you can't, <laughs> you can't be in here. You have to get out of here. And luckily, you know, Vasily, the uh, studio manager, came out and he goes, no, 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 it's okay. He's okay. He's a student. So I took pride in that. I felt like if, if I've pushed myself to the brink of looking homeless, then, you know, I'm working hard enough. Totally. I think I remember like when you uh, you went to L.A. while I was still had a year left or something. I think I remember you telling me stories about like thirding on sessions and then working in the morning and like sleeping in lounges. So you basically you just you sleep in studios. We should let everybody know that Jesse does have a house. He, he does sleep in a bed. I do. I'm not homeless. But in the beginning, I, yes. slept everywhere that he could find hallways, studios. It's true. It's crazy, too. I just thought about that, how crazy time, you know, how, how you think about time. Because I, I remember, I, I felt like I was out here for like five years before you got out here. But it was like, in reality, it was only like a year. That's because you only slept um, for six hours. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, the, those, those first years of running are nuts. I definitely remember when I got out here and started working at, uh, at Henson as a runner, it became very obvious that it was just, you know, whoever was going to work the hardest is going to end up getting somewhere, you know, I, I, you know, you can't really control your level of, uh, of talent that you have, but you can always control how much work you do. I just remember I reached a point after the first, you know, six months or something when, you know, the first six months, you're basically a pain in the ass because you don't know what's going on. Even if, even after four years of college, you think you know what's going on, but you know, as you know, you don't. You're you just a no liability. Idea. Right, exactly. So you can't, you know, I'd, I'd ask assistants like, oh, can I help set up? They'd be like, you have no idea what the fuck you're doing yet. But once you kind of get that, the hang of it, then I remember just thinking, well, I'll, I'll, I'm just going to put clothes in my trunk and I'm going to be the first person in the building and the last one to leave. And hopefully it won't take that long before someone's like, okay, that kid's working his ass off. Let me, you know, maybe he should get a job doing something better than running. So luckily that didn't take very long. How long were you a runner before you started working for Patrick Leonard, right? Yeah, I ran for, I started running in uh, June of 2005 and then... Pat hired me full time in October of two thousand six, so about a year and year and four months or something. Did you ever regret not being a staff assistant over there? You know, 
at the time I did. And I mean, honestly, it's still a little bit I do. In retrospect, I can't regret it because, I mean, any one of the assistants probably would have taken the opportunity to work for Pat Leonard full time, too. But I always viewed being an assistant at Henson as such a, a badge of honor that I felt a little bad I skipped over that step. But everyone has a different path, you know. Totally. We should tell our listeners that Patrick was, he rented a room there. So he saw you sleeping in the uh, the lounges and was, saw that you were always there. Is that kind of what drew him to like pluck you out of there and well, let you skip a step? Or how did that go down? It, in the midst of like the just sleeping there all the time, my studio manager noticed. And I remember Pat was uh, doing a record at the time and needed his engineer, Michael Perfect, needed another guy to help him out. And, uh, that was probably the most nuts time ever because I remember she put me in there unpaid, by the way. So this was off the clock. And so I would work for him five days a week being there like second engineer, basically from 11 till six or seven o'clock when I went on shift at night shift. And at that time, there was a couple groups in that were working till like six in the morning. So then I would go on from 6 p.m. till 6 a.m. Then I would just sleep on Pat's couch in his room and wake up about half an hour before I got in there to make it look like I wasn't sleeping in there and just, you know, put on a fresh shirt or not even a fresh shirt, just a shirt I hadn't worn recently and uh, like popped a Dr. Pepper because I never drank, I never drank coffee. And then I just like, you know, acted like, I, you know, I was, knew what I was doing. But that, that went on for like a month. And then Michael decided to move on uh, from that job and Pat liked me enough to hire me. So he just, he asked me if I wanted to, to join full time. That's crazy. You must have had to learn a bunch of stuff either right when you took over that job or right when you started, were you like shedding all that gear in his room? I know he was like a keyboard, had like quite a MIDI rig. Did you just have to jump in and learn all that stuff really quick? Yeah. You know, Michael is an awesome guy. He was super cool in the transition of that. And luckily for me, he didn't even really change buildings. He just moved upstairs with Wendy and Lisa. So he was always there for, if I had any questions, at least for the first couple months. So it was about as easy of a learning curve as possible. So yeah, I, there was quite a bit. I would be calling him up going, you know, at that time, Pat had, we were running like something like 20 different external MIDI modules. We had it all, all, all hooked up to a mixer. That's really before, you know, long before like soft synths were popular. And even if they were, Pat wouldn't have used those anyways. He still doesn't. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, there was, uh, that was, yeah, there was a lot to, there was a lot to take in. It was, it, that was a crazy time too, because at that same time, Pat was changing over his entire studio. I got put in charge all of a sudden of a $60,000 budget for an entirely new rig. And so it was, it was very much thrown in the deep end pretty early, but I, but honestly the staff at Henson, Danny, the tech and Jamie, the chief engineer at Henson were huge help in propping me up and making me look like I really knew what I was doing. So how long did you end up working for, for Pat then? I worked for Pat for about three years. Okay. You know, that was a, that was a strange time in the music business because it, it that was really when things started to change over. When I got to Henson, it was kind of right at the end of the the analog era. When I first got there, the only Pro Tools rigs they had were the, you know, the old 888s. They didn't even have Pro Tools HD then, which was crazy because Berkeley even had Pro Tools HD at that point. Schools always have a lot of money laying around. Yeah, that, I guess that's true. So yeah, and Pat was kind of transitioning out of pop music and was trying to find some other stuff. So we did everything from film scores to just, you know, solo piano improvs and all this stuff. When I first started working for him, it was still very much, you know, music business straight ahead. I mean, you know, we did that that record with Pat Monahan. Um, honestly, could write a book about the, those three years because, you know, I, I went in basically as as an untrained runner who, you know, it was nice because Pat, Pat was a really, really great guy. He knew where I was coming in at. He knew what I, what I was capable of, but he was always, he, he, he always pushed me and it was like, things that I didn't even think I could do, he'd be like, okay, we're doing this. And I'd, be, I'd kind of be like, I don't, I can't fucking do that. <laughs> and, it, it, you know, and he'd be like, he'd be like well, well, we're doing it. And you just kind of do it and figure it out. And he, you know, he had my back the whole time. I mean, one of my favorite memories ever, actually two of my favorite memories of Pat, if you, if, if you don't mind stories. We love are, stories. When I, when I first got, when I first started working for him, we were working on something and he made some reference to King Crimson. And he said, yeah, it's kind of, I kind of want to sound like 20th century schizoid man. And I kind of like pretended like I knew what he was talking about. He knew that I was kind of pretending. And he goes, hold on a second. Like, stop. Do you, do you know King Crimson? I'm like, no, no, I, I, I don't. I mean, I've heard of him, you know, but I don't really know him. And, he, and I was kind of nervous. And I'm like, oh, great. I, like this guy's favorite bands. I don't know. He's like, you know, Jethro Tull. I'm like, again, I know like a couple songs. Don't really know. He picks up the phone. Goes, we need a runner in here. 
Runner comes in, he hands him his credit card, goes, go to Amoeba, go to the, go, go to, he writes down a list of artists, go to these sections and call me when you get there. So, you know, 10 minutes later, he gets a call. He goes, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Get that one. No, don't get that one. That one sucks. Yeah. Get that one. Get that one. Okay, good. Okay. And then, and anyways, the runner comes back 10 minutes later with a stack of, I don't know, 15 CDs. It was like prog rock 101. And he's like, take all these home and listen to them. And I just thought that was, I was like, yeah. And a lot of those to this day are some of my favorite records, especially Dress Hotel's Sick as a Brick. I would never have known if that, if that if it wasn't for Pat. I just thought that was so amazing that, you know, instead of just, you know, thinking I was an asshole for not knowing the music he liked, he was, he was like, I'm just going to, I'm going to take this time to educate him on this. That's amazing. Well, now, you know, it's like Google it on YouTube or find it on Spotify. But yeah, back in the CD day, that's baller move. I like it. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Right now, it'd just be like, hold on, let me five, take five minutes to make you a playlist and share yeah, it with you exactly. on Spotify. <laughs> it'd be a lot easier. But less yeah, my other less favorite... meaningful, though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I know. That's, that's yeah, totally. That's, you know, can't be replaced. Yeah. My other favorite story of Pat, and this is another testament to, I think, also what makes great producers great, is kind of their over the overviewing scope of the entire project and how everyone feels, not just how the artists feel. When we were doing that Pat Monahan record, part of it we were doing at Conway. And I remember he had hired Billy Bush to do the main engineering on that. Because like I said, I still had no idea what the fuck I was doing. And that was that, and that was really early on. That was like the first six months I was working for him. So I was all for getting to work under a great engineer. So I had an editing rig set up in the, the building that was like across the courtyard working on drums or something. And I remember in the, in the live room, in the, in the in whatever studio we were working in across... We had like Vinnie Cauyuta and some badass band, Lyle Workman, it was Brian McLeod, and they were doing some track. And uh, I'm just thinking, okay, I've, I've got work to do. And Pat comes over and he goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm doing some editing. He's like, you're missing the best part of the record making process. Stop what you're doing and come over here. Because he knew that what was going on, is that's really what it's about. It's about the creation of music. And he knew I'd, I'd appreciate it, and he he wanted me to be there, and I I thought that was that was amazing. That is amazing. So many people would not have the the uh, the thought to go into the other room to to grab their new guy to make sure that he was getting the most out of that situation. Unfortunately, yeah, and I I agree. I, I and I I think that unfortunately that's I mean you know it's the it's just the nature of how things are. I mean, so much of a part of modern music making kind of leaves out the importance of like the hang. You know what I mean? It's it's so much more like like compartmentalized, and it's just like producers are a lot of times producers are guys who just kind of crank out a track, and sometimes don't even do anything more than that. So uh, or even come to the session, yeah, or even yeah, exactly. They send send it right. So I was happy. I at least got to learn under a guy who, in my opinion, really knows what the full scope of production is about. I mean, that's I think that's uh, it's really a lost art. I don't know if it's lost. It's just, it's so different now. And I think there's also less opportunities for that old art to come through because pe right. people are working so yeah, independently I, and so separately. Right. You know, it, yeah. To the modern technology and how we do things, uh, you know, it just doesn't, you rarely have that. We're, we're all in a room, all kind of together. No one's got their phones on because they didn't exist then. And, right. or, you know, smartphones and everyone's just kind of working towards a goal. But, you know, things change and it is what it is. Well, I wanted to go back to, uh, you said, you know, when you came out and you started working at Henson, there was just 888s and studios and everything was about to change. How do you think uh, engineering has kind of like shifted over the last 15 or 16 years that you've been working in it? What do you think is important today that maybe was or wasn't important when you started? Hmm. Well, it's an interesting thing because I feel like two things have happened when it comes to engineering and the importance of audio fidelity and making things sound great. And it's a funny thing because you'd think they would play off against each other, but we have the ability today with modern plugins to make things sound like nothing ever before. I mean, the A plus mixes that I listen to that are coming off today sound so otherworldly to me that even mixing has become so completely different. But at the same time, I also feel like the average person's ability to accurately judge the quality of recordings has completely plummeted. I think that Agreed. that most people have no idea what something is. is does, does this sound good? I don't know. I don't know what we hired this guy to make it sound good. Is, 
who's he worked with? Does he have any Grammys? Okay, well, he's got Grammys, so it must sound good. He must sound. Having like an objective <laughs> viewpoint, I don't think a lot of people really understand that. So, you know, they just kind of rely on, well, I, I don't know, does, does that person think it sound good? Or, you know, who, it's funny, I go back and listen to mixes of songs I love, and they're still great, but I mean, like, fuck, man, you listen to, like, Serban when he mixes a hit, and you're like, fucking shit. <laughs> like, it, it's like, I, I like listen to that, and it like, makes me want to quit. I'm like, I do not, I, like, what sorcery are you doing to make this sound like this? I can't dissect it, and, you know, not that not that I need to. You know, everyone's got their own thing, but, um, but yeah, I, some of the great modern mixers make things sound, I, like, I can't even believe. It's good. He is extremely talented. His work is is really amazing. Servant's work, and it's you can always tell it, everything is so like in the right place and clear, and like you hear everything. And well, a lot of yeah, it's he's the, one the of, production in those records too, though, and those pop like very particular pop records. Oh yeah, I agree. And you know, it's funny too. Like I've I've always wondered that too. Like you know, obviously, you know, the best producers in the world are working with him, so. He's obviously getting the best produced tracks with the guys who know exactly what they're doing. Um, you know, the Max Martins in the world and stuff like that. So I've always wondered that if I like just sent him some like, you know, me banging on a cowbell and like, an, like just, just as an experiment, like sent him like something that was like not particularly put together well, if he would make it sound amazing. I'd be like, yeah, no, he is that good. It, that sounds like an expensive experiment. <laughs> yeah, yes, it, it would be. <laughs> Who would be? But uh, but no, I, it, yeah, it's true. It is a lot of it is the production too. But th- that goes back to like what I'm saying. Like the tools that the average person ha- can have nowadays. It's amazing how much stuff they have. I mean, taking part Billie Eilish's record. I mean, made in a in a bedroom, and I think sonically that was one of the coolest things I've heard last year. Oh, it's probably amazing. the coolest thing I heard last year. Oh, it is. It it's so well done. Everything in there is just so well designed. It, it's really amazing. It's like um, I was going to say you were talking about the fidelity, people's lack of being able to decide whether something sonically sounds good, I think is also a testament to how good a song is. Because, you know, as an engineer, you're probably going to say like, oh, that that mix isn't very good or that recording is not very good, but the song is still amazing. And so when you take those amazing songs and then you pair them with like the amazing production and the amazing mixing. It- right. And that, that really nails it too, because it, it's things that sound great, but everybody has the ability, to, like we said, everybody has the ability to do that in their in their bedroom. But not everybody has the ability to write great music. Exactly. Yeah. Great music that is recorded awfully is still really great music. And yeah. That, yep. That'll always stay the same. That's for sure. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. I wanted to kind of like jump back to you for a minute. What were your aspirations and your goals like when you got to Los Angeles and you got a job at Henson and then you found yourself engineering for Pat? Where was that on your path? Like were you all of a sudden blown past where you thought you would be what was your aspiration at that point yeah yeah it's funny i was i was just thinking about this last night i grew up in a a really regular family i mean you know my mom was a musician my dad was a episcopal minister and so when i was like 15 and said i wanted to do music they was very much like okay y- not for a living but you know you can you can do that as a backup they definitely did not view this as a viable career so to your point i feel like i set my goals pretty low for when I first came out here. I mean, I was so kind of nervous and scared about it that my goal was basically just to fully support myself doing what I love doing. That was it. I didn't have any aspirations of grandeur. I'm like, if I can just afford rent and like keep doing this for several years, then like that will exceed my expectations. And once I, when I achieved that, you know, 15 months into moving to LA, I was kind of like, okay, all right, time to, you know, try to up the bar at some point. But yeah, it definitely blew past what I kind of envisioned at the beginning, you know, especially when you talk to other people. It always seems to be the people who, I don't know, fail out the most tend to be the loudest for some reason. So you always hear these stories of like, oh yeah, I ran for two years and it sucked. And then 
after that, then I was an assistant, barely getting by doing the XX and X, and it was kind of miserable. And you, you know, you get scared by those things. So you kind of quell your expectations of what's going to happen. So yeah, going right into the role with Pat, I definitely think that that exceeded kind of what I had imagined was going to happen in the first couple of years out here. But you know, I mean, the road's constantly changing. The road's always rockier. I mean, three years later, you know, he he moves out of Henson, and all of a sudden, I'm. I, I didn't choose to go freelance. I just basically came unemployed and it was either <laughs> it was either sink or swim. So so it all changes, you know. What what was your move when when that happened, when you guys stopped working together regularly? Did you feel like you were kind of on an island because you'd spent so much time just working with one person? Well, yeah, it's a funny thing, you know. That's the last time I've been like fully employed was when I was working for Pat. And it's if you ever like had any success freelancing, and I'm sure you'd know this too. Like having that job security is like a blessing and a curse yeah, because, totally. you know, it's, it's, it's lovely because you're, you know, you're getting a check every week and, you know, you like what you're doing. But then, you know, if an opportunity comes around, someone asks you to make a record, you can't do it because you're busy doing something else. And you're kind of going like, ah, I wish I could, I wish I didn't have this job right now. So it kind of works in both ways. So um, it all happened really organically. I have to say when, when he left for one reason or another, I just, I'd gotten to know enough people through working with him and I was in really good standing with the, with Fariel and Jamie at Henson. Fariel Russell is the studio manager at Henson. And so they, um, you know, they were really good with calling me up when someone would come into Henson and needed a, an engineer. So it just kind of made it work. I definitely hit some rough points later on where I was like, okay, this, this ship's going down. I need, <laughs> I need something to happen here or it's not, but at least right at the beginning, it, it all, it all felt like it was meant to be like it, it very much. I remember I kind of slipped into a couple gigs early and it was okay. Also at that time though, my overhead was incredibly low. I was living in a house in Van Nuys with three other guys, you know, paying $500 in rent a month. I mean, it's like, you know, the, I, I didn't have much to cover. So, but I mean, you know, it was great. Another thing about setting higher goals than you think you can achieve. I remember at that time thinking, okay, I just spent three years in a full-time job supporting myself. If I can be freelance and support myself for another three years, I will consider that a complete success. And like, here we are, it's, that's 10 years ago and I'm still doing this thing. So it's like, I don't know, just, it's just one of those things. It's time moves by really fast and, you know, might as well shoot for as high as you can go because, uh, you know, if you, if you set too low of a goal and you reach it, then you're kind of sitting there going, well, what am I supposed to do next? Well, the freelance world is such a roller coaster too. It's just, you know, feel like everybody calls at the same time and then you have to say no oh. to something or you you know, pass it off to one of your buddies and then the next thing you know nobody calls for like two or three weeks and you're like man I wish I had one of those things I turned down last month what happened last month yeah. you know yeah exactly yeah it is an adventure but it's like I don't know it's the most I've had a bunch of jobs work for various people I mean working for myself has been the most fulfilling thing I've done well I mean it's also been the most stressful at times but it always pans out to be way better, I think. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, if you can keep afloat freelancing, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's the greatest because it's the, the variety of things you get to work on. I, I've always been, you know, like my wife is the exact opposite of, of, of me in terms of being able to work for one person for too long. I, I find that as much as I love Pat, by the end of three years of coming in every day, I think... I was like, I'm over this. Like, I know that's that's probably not the best quality for me to have, but but freelance is, is it always keeps it fresh because even if I have reoccurring clients, you know, over ten years, I don't work often enough with them where it's like we're together every day, all day. Where it's like, okay, you know, I've, I'm kind of feeling stagnant about this. So it yeah, it always keeps things fresh, and it also you know lets you kind of determine you know your schedule. Not that you not that I'm in a position to turn down gigs, but the freedom is is nice. Yeah. No, agreed. I think most of the jobs I've had have been like two and a half, three and a half years. I, I do feel like you you get stagnant. I mean, you can love the job. I mean, I enjoyed all the jobs I had, but you know, when I was doing just Disney pop type stuff earlier when I first was out on my own working with with uh, an outside producer. Matthew, right? Yeah, working for Matthew Gerard at the time. And I learned so much in that world, in that songwriting world, in that pop world. And when I left there and went back to Capitol, and got back into that more traditional engineering thing. I just, there was all these things where I was like, oh man, I missed this, I missed this, I, I didn't learn that, I didn't learn that. And then I just started sucking all that knowledge in. And I just feel like when you make those shifts between 
whatever it is, job or long-term, uh, long-time collaborator or whatever, you get excited, you know, because you get used to working this way with this person and this way with this place and, and whatever. So it's good. It's a refreshing change and, you know, gives you a chance to relearn some things and flip your tricks a little bit. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's always, yeah. I feel like it also, it forces you to stay on your toes the whole time. You can't be comfortable because you're always in a new studio with a new client and what whatever it is. So it keeps you sharp like that. I feel like if you, you know, for me, being in the same position everywhere, it, it kind of dulls you. You can get lazy without even knowing it, you know? Yeah, it's not lazy. It's just you get really good at what you're doing and right. it takes less effort to mic the piano because it's been mic'd for a year and a half or whatever, you know, and you don't <laughs> move it and everybody likes the sound of it and then... It is what it is. That's that's the one thing that I do regret about, because I didn't spend that much time, really, I very little time assisting when I was at Capitol, and you spent basically none at, at Henson, was the different challenges every day. That I regret missing, because I know that there's stuff that I learned later that I would have gotten out of those things early on. Yeah, yeah I can see that. The yeah. one thing about skipping that step that always kind of bummed me, but, you know, you go where the road goes. So, what, but you didn't skip a step though. You were an assistant. Not really. No, no. Oh, really? No. I was, I got like to that point where I probably would have got the next job that opened, but I didn't know when that job would be. And I would get the gigs that people didn't want. That's when I got the opportunity to go work for Matthew as his engineer. Oh, so, wow. Okay. So, so how, how long did you run for Capital then? Probably about two and a half years, two and a half, three years. And then okay. I went to go work All for right. Matthew for like three, and then I went back to Capitol for five. But I went back as an engineer in those like pop rooms that they were doing. Right, right, right. I think that's what I'm getting confused with. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, when I was doing that, I did do some assisting, but like maybe like once a month I would do a session downstairs in A, B, or C. Like mostly I was doing all of those, all those pop sessions that they were booking in the, the new production rooms that they'd built at that time. They're totally, right. totally different situation over there now. It's all built out totally differently. But yeah, so I kind of missed that as well. But I don't regret it. I wanted to ask you, you were talking about some of your return clients. And I've always noticed that you seem to, you have quite a rapport with the people that you work with. I feel like you end up working with people for like multiple records or for a fairly long time. How do you end up becoming the favorite? You know what I mean? Do you have any insight? Yeah, I do. do you uh, know why people yeah. love coming back to Jesse? <laughs> I mean, I guess you'd have to ask them, but I, I would say that the way I've always looked at uh, myself as an engineer and just in general, uh, just working with musicians is that, you know, I've always come at it as a musician. I mean, I was a musician long before I was an engineer and I basically spent the four years in high school trying to figure out like what avenue of the music business I was going to go down. And it wasn't until I got my first four track when I was 18 that I was like, okay, I think this is going to be a really great outlet for me. It kind of kind of services both, you know, two of the things I, I, I really love the technological side of this, but it's still creative. I feel like that's always kind of helped me relate and get on the same level with the musicians I've worked with. And I, that's, that, that's honestly... That's all, and it's always what I've tried to do. And, and you know, Pat told me that when I first started working with him too. Something about how how what he loved about working with me was how seamlessly he was able to get ideas out of his head into the box without you know anything in between. And so I've always kept that as kind of my motto because uh, you know I never I I feel like I'm self deprecating, but I mean I never felt like I could make things sound as good as a lot of other people. But I always felt like I could make the artists I was working with in the rooms feel as comfortable as possible and as confident that they were getting down as accurately as possible what they were trying to get down without any interference, without noise, just figure out a way to get on this person's level and get what they're trying to get done. And I think that's resonated with a lot of people. And I think that's why I tend to get repeat business like that, because I don't know, I just, it's at the end of the day, I pick up a guitar before I, you know, turn on a Pro Tools rig. I still have that side of things. I just love music and working one-on-one -on -one with with musicians has just been my favorite part of this whole thing. It's it's great to make things sound good. It's awesome setting up microphones. But the longer I've done it too, the more I've come back to the, the personal relationship. And the other thing is you just, you know, at least prior to the pandemic, when you're working with people, you're spending a lot of time in rooms together just day after day. And if you're going to do that, you want to be someone that they want to hang out with, you know, all the time. It's just trying to kind of develop a temperament that's uh, 
you know, kind of pushing when you need to, stepping back when you don't, you know, or when you need to do that and just really listening to what, what people need and what they're trying to get done. That's, that's kind of just always what I tried to do. Have you ever had a situation where you felt like the better choice was to potentially compromise the recording aspect of things in order to uh, allow someone to get an idea out quicker or easier? Oh yeah, absolutely. I would compromise at recording in a second. I, yeah, I, absolutely. If so, you know, if someone says go, you, I just go. I'm, I'm not like, hold on, I got to do the thing. I got to make it sound good. You just go. Can we EQ like, this for a little if, while? If they come back and go, why does it sound like shit? Which they never would do because they, they know that you needed to do it fast. You're going to say, well, I mean, you know, you wanted to get it down and that's how, you know, I opened up the closest mic that was there and we went. But but no one ever says that because far more important than making things sound 2% better is the fleeting aspect of what these people are doing. I mean, they're creating all, you know, all the time. You, I remember like talking like jaded engineers who would be pissed off about someone being impatient or something. And it's like, well, yeah, haven't you ever had an idea and you've lost it? Because it's like this, it just goes away and you don't know what, what that could have been. But I have, I'm not a pro songwriter, but I've done it enough times that like, I, I can appreciate that. So if someone says, you know, get it going, you just go. Yeah, I've done it more times than I want to admit. You ever, I, you ever have one of those situations where you record something and because you know you had to, and then at the end of the day, you're like, okay, I, I'm about to send this to some other producer or send this to some mixer. I'm like, I need to clean this up. We need to RX this. <laughs> I need to, I, nobody can know that this is what I actually just recorded. You put a little EQ on it, process it. So it sounds like, uh, yeah, sounds like you actually got to get a sound. I, I think oh, yeah. that's one of the things that's great about all the technology that we have now is you have those things to allow you to save a performance or to fix what needs to be fixed. Especially now that you can melodyne one one note out of a chord. Oh, this dude, is the, the the editing things. It's crazy. Yeah, go ahead. No, that's it. That's all I had to say. <laughs> I was gonna say. I mean, yeah, the editing possibilities are nuts. I mean, just the two things that I used this week that if I didn't have the RX D click. Yeah. You like I was I did this cello recording and there's just little ticks and pops. It's un it's unfucking believable. It literally doesn't do anything except take the click away. And the other one is uh, not to get too nerded out on plugins, but the Pro Tools X form is fucking unbelievable when it comes to like time stretching. Like you can yeah. t you can do anything. You can hear almost no artifacts. I mean, it's it's like cutoffs on words. You can make it sounds like like anything. Yeah, the tech technology is getting uh, is getting wild. I I don't think. Well, I mean, I could do this podcast without RX, but I spend a lot of time. In RX on this, putting this show together. It's got so many tricks in there. Yeah, well, it's, it's worth it. It sounds really nice. I'm looking forward to you making me sound that good. It's nice <laughs> to not have to do, do it myself. <laughs> oh, I forgot to tell you that I need you to go ahead and mix your your mic before you send it over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah have, have fun taking out these plosives everywhere. I, I see them as they're going by. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There, I love that. I wanted to, to touch on, um, I think it, it kind of connects a little bit with, you know, the repeat clients. I was like, I don't think I've ever met somebody that is as excited about things, anything. Like you are like, always have the most positive attitude, I think of anybody that I know when you walk into a room. Maybe like, maybe you're mad after a golf shot for like 45 seconds, but where, where did that kind of like, you're, you have this like really positive energy that you bring into a room. How do you maintain that through like, even something like 2020? I mean- was it the way that you were raised that you just, just like, you're just living life to the best here? Yeah. yeah. It's funny you said that. I've, I've actually never heard anyone say that about me. I think I'm actually able to exhibit that on the outside a lot more than I maybe feel it internally. I mean, I mean, just 2020 alone, trust me, there's been a lot of dark moments <laughs> this year. I do remember like when I first started working at Henson, one of the assistants, Herman Viacorta, who was one of my favorite people of all time, he would always say really jokingly, because he would have me in sessions once in a while, and he, he would always say, why is your attitude so fucking bad? But he would completely jokingly, and, I, and I'm just, I, I, I'm almost like, oh my gosh, like what's, like, wh is, it, is it bad? And he's just <laughs> like, no, it's the opposite of that, you idiot. Like you're smiling all the time. Like, how, like and I'm like, I don't, honestly, I don't even, I, I didn't even think about it. I think that you know, when I get in my head and I'm doing things, I really just enjoy 
doing things I love. And I'm glad it shows on my face. I'm really glad that I don't have like resting bitch face or something where I could <laughs> sit there and like actually be super happy, but like look like I'm pissed off like a lot of people do. But yeah, but on the golf course, it's a, it's a totally different thing. I That's literally my happy place in the entire world. So, you know, the worst round of golf is still one of the best days ever. I, I do remember consciously the first couple times I ever went into a room as a third, which is if, if you don't know what thirding is on a session, it's you're below the assistant at that point. You basically have no job other than to be in there and don't fuck anything up. Like you have no other, <laughs> no other job. And I remember the first time I was ever thirding, I just thought I'm going to sit here and be like a beacon of good vibes. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to do anything. But if anyone looks over, I want them to be like, that kid is enjoying the fuck out of himself right now being in this room. <laughs> Because I was, and uh, I just remember, like, if I if I don't have any other job, this is going to be my job. That's what I've what I've always done. I, I, and then it only gets more fun after that. And once you're actually like, you know, in the driver's seat working with musicians, I mean, what's not to love? So it's really like, I, I guess what I've taken away is that it's the people to people interactions in the relationships that like really drive you and make you really love engineering. Yeah, it is, and I think it's one of the reasons I don't end up doing a ton of mixing. I feel like the the one on one in-room stuff is is what really what kind of keeps me going and what you know not not only what i love most but what i think it's what i do best so so that's also been the biggest downer of 2020 there's not a lot of people making music in the rooms with each other but you know hoping that changes but yeah until then i just you know one of those old school kind of vibes that you always kind of hear our engineers talking about is like yeah everything's you know you can look all you know calm and cool when everything's going well but like if you've got a 30-piece orchestra in there who's on union and like four microphones are crapping out and like, you know, you're getting some sort of digital clock error at the same time. And, you know, basically everyone's looking at you and you're under the gun. Like, can you stay that cool? And so, uh, so I, I always remember thinking about that and always really, really wanting to be that guy who was just going to be the last guy in the room to crack. And so I've always felt like that. I've always loved trying to be like, okay, like after you're doing this 15 years, you're eventually going to be in some situations where, the shit is hitting the fan and everyone's looking at you. And it's like, you can either take this opportunity to, you know, calmly do this and assure as much confidence in everybody that you know what you're doing, or you just start sweating your balls off and it's going to make things worse. So, you know, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of an acting job at that point, but uh, it's really important. I think it's, it's very important. The people you're working with have to feel like you know what you're doing, especially since I've always felt like I never knew what I was doing. So I've always <laughs> felt like it was really important to look like I knew what I was doing. So stay, staying cool and, uh, and positive, I think, is a good way to do that. Was there, uh, is there any session that comes to mind where you just sat there like, oh, shit, like, I got to keep my cool that you're willing to share? Have you ever hit that moment where you're like, I'm not going to break? The first thing that comes to mind is when I was up in Paisley Park working with Prince. And it was our last day there. Well, I, actually, I thought our last day had already ended. We had gone home at six in the morning to sleep for about three hours before our flight left at eight. And I laid down in bed. I probably slept for an hour and I get a call saying, hey, you got to come back in. Prince worked on something. He was about to leave on tour. I remember he was about to leave on tour and he got inspired right after we left at six in the morning and wanted to get down this intro idea that he was going to play on CD before he came out on stage. And we went in and like, we're in there. My buddy, Justin Stanley was mixing. I was assisting him and we're under the gun. Like the private plane is fueled up and ready to go. Like it's they're one foot out the door and he's getting this down and he was recording down to a master link machine. And I remember we recorded it in, he recorded it in at some super high uh, sample rate. It was like 192 or something. And I don't know if you've never, you ever use those machines, but when you go to burn the disc, when it's done, it has to like render the whole thing down. It takes a couple of minutes depending on how big your sample rate is. And Prince is standing next to me and he goes, pull out the CD, we have to go. And I'm like, I can't pull out the CD, it's it's rendering. He's like, pull it out, I have to go. I need this right now, get it out of there. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't do it. If I do that, you're not going to have a CD. He's like, pull it out, I don't care, get it out of the machine. And I just look down at the ground and stood there. And he <laughs> continues to go, get the machine. And, and like, I, I swear, at that point, I, I was like, he's totally fucking testing me. And uh, I stood there and I waited till the machine was done and I popped out the disc and said, here you go. And he went on his way and that was it. But I was like, whoo, that was like, that was like, that like 90 seconds that I'm standing there. I'm like, okay, 
yeah, no, I, you can kill me, but I'm not going to hand you a disc that's not going to play when you go in to play it because all you're going to think is that kid fucked it up. Oh, that's that's a good one. I like that. He, he liked testing people. You know, speaking of that, people who lose their cool and sweat, he loved doing that. When we first got up there, he was doing this live show. He was kind of running back and forth. He had a, he, you know, he had his, at Paisley Park, there's an entire soundstage there that he was rehearsing with his live band and he was coming back in the studio and working with us. And he asked us to come into this, to the live show because these guys he'd brought in for the live show were disappointing him. And we get in there and he's going, why does this sound like shit? Why does this not sound good? And the, the poor sound guy who just looked like, I mean, he was, his like hair was like matted down and I was sitting there like, oh no, this is going to be bad. I remember he goes, well, well, Prince, if you, if you just would give me like an hour to just go over this whole system so I could figure it out, you know, I could suss out this issue. And he goes, if you were a doctor and I was dying and I was lying on the table, would you, would you say you need an entire hour to search over my whole body before you fix the problem? And I was like, oh, fuck, this guy's fucking getting fired. And, and he did. He got, he got fired 10 minutes later. And then he literally was like, you, what would you do to fix the problem? And without even thinking, I just stood up and I'm like, I just started touching stuff on the, on the console. I'm like, okay, I would do this, this. And I was like, I was like, because you can't claim up. Like if, especially with people like that and you, you can tell and he was, he's definitely one of those guys that, that tried to push people to see if they crack. And that guy, I, that guy literally might've been in Paisley park for a couple hours and, uh, and yeah, he got pulled aside and then he came back and said, Hey guys, I just told, got told I got to go home. So whatever you do, keep your shit together. Don't crack. Was it good? How, how have we only just started talking about Prince now? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it was, We've been doing I was this only for 45 up there. I was up minutes there. and we, ju we just hit Prince. Yeah. I was only up there for two, two week spans. I can't, I can't I think it was late 2012, early 2013 or late 2011, early 20. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, that was, uh, it was, that was an insane, insane thing to do. And, uh, it was awesome. And again, it was awesome because for one, I'm working with, you know, one of the greatest rock stars of all time, but I was also working with someone who was notoriously really difficult and had fired a lot of people and obviously demanded an extremely high quality of work and professionalism. And uh, what I really loved about that is that, you know, he's a very guarded guy, understandably, but over the course of the time that we were there, especially the last couple um, days after like at the end of those four weeks, he really started to loosen up. And that was really cool because then I felt like I was getting to see something that even people who had worked for him probably didn't get to see that much. Because if you worked for him for a, a couple of days, you would never have gotten to see that. But you know, instead of coming down, like dressed to the nines with heels on, like he'd come down and, you know, flip flops and a t-shirt. And it wasn't like, you're kind of getting like, holy shit. Like I'm actually like getting to see the real Prince here. That was really cool. I think that's another part of the testament of making people feel comfortable and confident in what, what they're doing. Musicians are going to make better music when they're comfortable. It's, you know, no one wants to sit there feeling like they're being judged or anything like that. And I was always really proud of the fact that I'd kind of got to that level with Prince that I felt like, like, holy shit, like he's, I think he's actually respecting me as an engineer. It's not just kind of like, you know, some dude who's here. And that was, that was great. That's amazing. It's really good. I can't imagine the stress level because he had a very high bar. Everybody that I've ever met that has worked with him has talked about basically what you discussed where he was, you know, very demanding, extremely talented, you know, wants to make sure everyone around him is at that same level at all times. But when you're at that level, you kind of, you need that. Everyone around you needs to be on their A game, which goes back to like working in a room. Like if one or two people show up with their B game and the artist is having like the greatest day of their life and the assistant engineer's got a bad vibe and the engineer's drawing off of it, like that artist is not going to have a great vocal day or whatever it is. Like the creative world is like, is a sensitive place. I mean, everybody thinks that you just show up and you do it and you can, but there is a feeling in a room. Like I've seen sessions go south because somebody got a bad vibe halfway through and all of a sudden nobody wants to sing anymore, you know, or whatnot. And nobody's said anything verbally to anybody. It's just like the energy sucks out. And Abs yeah, absolutely. I've always been amazed at people who are so oblivious to that too. I think that there's something about our job that can sometimes attract people who just see it from like a technological standpoint. When, for my opinion, it can, it's, the technology is an afterthought, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, there's a time and place for it. But when you're making music, I mean, I think those, those kind of people who are uh, just kind of a way more cerebral approach to engineering 
will usually tend to, you know, fall off and find some other sort of engineering job because I feel like the people who last in this understand that it's, it is about understanding musicians and being able to help them, you know, get their ideas out. It's not fuck your microphones, man. It's like, fuck this shit. Like fuck the gear. Like it really doesn't matter. It's if you've got a phone, you can record something. Like you said, the greatest song ever recorded on an iPhone is better than no song recorded at all because the fucking engineer was sitting there trying to decide what microphone to use. It's, it's, it's pointless. Yeah. No, completely. I, I 100% agreed. I wanted to ask you one more question before we close out. And it goes back to how we were talking about the recording studio business changing and especially even more so now in 2020. I feel like a lot of people are buying gear. They're, they're recording themselves. There's, everything's remote, obviously. There's very few sessions. What do you think the future looks like? Do you think that people are going to be really accepting of this creating a record with everyone in a different place in a different world? Or do you think everyone's going to stand in line to get back in the room and like play guitar, drums, and bass together? There, there, there will never be a replacement for making music with each other. Even at a time now when people are, uh, you know, making music so not together and I, I feel like general interest in musicianship is down, there will never be an end to people, kids getting together and wanting to play music and then wanting to, you know, do that more. Yeah, I don't really know. I My instinct tells me that there will always be there will always be people getting together in rooms to make music. I mean, the pandemic can't last forever. And, you know, eventually when people feel safe and comfortable doing that, it's going to resume. My big question is, where is this going to happen? Because I just feel like so many things are changing. The landscape of the United States is changing. You know, there's like a, seems to be like a mass exodus of people out of California. This happening at the same time when home recording possibilities are getting not only greater, but infinitely cheaper yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. It kind of makes me wonder, is it like, instead of these big hubs where it's like New York, Nashville, Los Angeles, is it instead going to be like these pods that are just located everywhere? You know, and there's always been people that work to remote places, you know, Butch Vig up in Wisconsin and, you know, wh whoever. The, every, big producers always have little spots, but it kind of made me wonder. I'm like, is it's like Boise, Idaho going to take off and there's going to be a bunch of bands there or, or Austin, Texas or... Not that that's not a, you know, a, a big recording spot in general, but yeah, I think it'll always come back. But I do question when all this comes back, if Los Angeles is going to be what it was. And not, not only that, but at the same time, you know, you know, big studios have been dying off for years and years. So all these things coming together kind of make me kind of wonder where it's like when all this, when all this dust settles, where's everyone going to be? That's, yeah. that's, that's how I, that's how I look at it. Yeah. Well, it's becoming much easier to to do a full-on professional record in a cabin in the woods or in a house in the desert or whatever. And, you know, you can set up a remote place. And now that people are, like you said, leaving the cities, you know, moving particularly out of California, why not go somewhere else to record? I mean, if you have five members in your band and you guys all used to live in Los Angeles, and now you live in five different states, why would you come back to LA to record when there's like a cool spot outside of, Chicago or outside of Austin or something like there's definitely it, I agree it, it'll be interesting to see in a year like what the landscape looks like where people are working and where they feel comfortable and what new things open what old things close you know it, unfortunately I'm sure some studios will not make it through right to your point like okay so I thought about this okay so we you know we graduated we both graduated Berkeley and, we, you know, we both were like, we're going to move out to Los Angeles. Okay. So I know this is like a microcosm and I can't speak of anyone else graduating from any other music schools, but okay. It's 2020 right now. Like, could you imagine, could you imagine being in this position? Let's say you just, just had graduated Berkeley in May with a degree in production engineering. Why in the hell would you come out to Los Angeles? It's not just musicians. It's like people and moving in general, like, what would you come out here to do? No one's hiring runners. Like they're they're th th like finding an entry level job right now. So and, and that's just one that's just one aspect of it, right? So let's just take you know people who would come out and do, be runners. No one's no one's going to move out here to try to do that right now. Let alone the fact that the cost of living in this city has gone up drastically compared to you know what you know the average runner would make. Either oh, yeah. I could not survive on the wage that we I was getting in two thousand five today. Not even close. So. When you factor all that in, you start to go like, what's the draw to come to Los Angeles? It does open up the gate for uh, other places to be hubs of, of uh, you know, of recording and music, which honestly I think is a great thing because, you know, uh, 
there are too many people in this city anyways. Honestly, I, I think a lot of people in this town feels the same way, that it, if there was another opportunity in another place that, you know, there was a place that they would want to move to, they'd entertain the, the chance to go. I love Los Angeles, and there's a lot of things that are great about it, but there's a lot of downsides to the state, if, you know, as, as we've discussed before. But um, it does feel like L.A. kind of has, has a monopoly on things um, uh, in terms of the music business in a lot of ways. So I think that it wouldn't be that bad of a thing if, if stuff started getting spread out and, you know, people were working in other places. Yeah, well, it's still, you know, music aside, L.A. still has, it has such a foothold in film and television production and even yes, even though people right. are that, shooting, that will always be that. yeah, even though people are shooting all over the country, they're shooting in Toronto, they're shooting in Georgia. There's still most of the post production and the in this. Well, I guess a lot of the scoring is is going over to uh, UK, but overseas, yeah. Yes. Um, there's still a lot of that here. There's still an opportunity to do a lot of post production. There's, I mean, video editing. All of that stuff is still here, but. It's going to be a hub for a long time, but I agree that it's it's a changing landscape, especially with this year, has really put a wrench in what this place looks like. But, yeah, you're right. When it comes to, I mean, entertainment in general, yes, Los Angeles will always be, I mean, the, the infrastructure that is built here, that just that alone will always keep that here. But like, like we've discussed, there is no infrastructure for music anymore, no. or the existing one doesn't matter, as we've shown. Billie Eilish won Grammy of the Year or Album of the Year without going into a major studio. So, you know, uh, like the, the the film industry isn't there yet. No one's winning, you know, best Oscar awards for non-professionally made, you know, movies yet. Yeah. I mean, I'm, well, that, that, that that's a whole other rabbit hole. But uh, <laughs> There's another um, podcast for that somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you know what I'm saying? So it's like when it comes to film, yes. But I don't know about you, but when you moved out to L.A., I always had this thought that like the music business and the film business were about the same size before I got here. And then when I got here, you realize that the music business is like a millionth of the size of the film business. It's not even, it's like absolutely not even close. Oh, yeah. If the music business left LA, I don't think anyone would notice. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to tangent really, really hard into into random nonsense, but. That's fine. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, do you remember the writer's strike? Yeah, because I remember, I remember that Kimmel got put on, you know, for Kelly's job. Kimmel got put on break for that. Yeah, I mean, I just remember... Because when I was at Capitol as a runner, there was uh, we did so many TV shows, and I remember when that that big writer strike happened, just to show you how big the the film industry is. Like some of the restaurants were like they're not getting their big catering orders, and like eventually all the TV shows that we would do like on a weekly or biweekly basis for scoring like stopped showing up, and then like the studios were kind of empty, and so yeah, the the film business definitely dwarfs the uh, music business. It's like you know. It runs Los Angeles. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean that that if all the engineers in LA strike went on strike, like people would be like, "What? Like there's no, yeah no there's like there's like a group of hundred people who aren't working." You know what I mean? It's like this. <laughs> they said they recorded records. Is, um, yeah, right. It's like what do they do? Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I can do that. <laughs> okay. All right. So now that we've crossed through a bunch of stuff that may or may not make the cut, I like to close every episode by asking asking you a question i want to ask what is your current big goal for you or your career and what's the first thing first smallest step you're going to take to go towards it well you know that's a that's that is a great question because i i have to answer that with i i don't have one right at the moment <laughs> I, I i i know that's a cop-out answer but i do think as you know as life unfolds i mean you know I was lucky enough five years ago to have a boy, a baby boy, and, you know, a couple of years later, I have another one. So my goals kind of necessitated just doing what I can do to continue to, you know, support my family and, you know, raise two kids. And that has pretty much kept me like up to, like, up to here underwater. I mean, like I'm getting to the point right now where, you know, and, and then obviously this pandemic just really put us for a spin. I mean, there was a joke by Jim Gaffigan that I always love where he, he, you know, at the at the time he had five kids, which I can't even relate to, but even with two. And he goes, if you want to know what's, what it's like to have five kids, just imagine you're drowning and then someone hands you a baby. <laughs> My goal basically recently has just been to, to kind of keep afloat and do what we got to do. You know, this pandemic changed everything around. We didn't have any options for childcare. So, you know, basically me and my wife were, mostly me, had been watching the boys full time 
and just trading, uh, you know, if I would get a gig, you know, to have to figure it out so one of us can watch the kids and make this work. But, you know, that time's going to pass and they're going to get into school and it's going to eventually open up time for me. And yeah, that's going to be something that I'm, I, I, I'm going to need to focus. In fact, I will say that, you know, listening through your podcasts, especially you reminded me about that war of art book. It made me remember that I, I, I used to be very goal oriented and that I, I just feel like due to circumstances in life, I haven't been recently. And I do think that that's something I, I thrive off of and uh, it helps me. So, you know, when the dust settles here, I do plan on getting some goals and then setting them up and achieving them. I mean, yeah. I wish, honestly, Trav, I wish I had a better answer for you. I know that's, that's I feel like that's kind of depressing, but I mean, it's, no, I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's, but it's, it's just life. Yeah. Well, it is, it is life. And I think that's like, that in itself is like a huge takeaway. You know, I've never really had like really straightforward goals and like this wandering path that I've had for, you know, for years until recently, you know, in the last few years, like I've changed the way that I look at life. And a lot of that has to do with meeting my wife and, and wanting to, you know, take a little bit more control of my situation. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is just as important to recognize that life throws curveballs and 2020 has been a gnarly curveball. And everybody I know that has, has kids has been, you know, working for it. It's been, been a tough year. So, I mean, yeah, surviving 2020 is a, is a goal that, that is actually, uh, that is a valid goal. Most people have that goal. And then on the other side of that, then you can, Take a second, breathe in when you got a chance to breathe in. I can get behind that totally. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And now that I think about it, you know, like I said, when you mentioned that War of Art book, it did remind me that that I, I do think that a constant ongoing goal of mine is to, as the book puts it, you know, be be more of a pro, be pro. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's true. E- even after all this time, 15 years of doing this and working with a bunch of artists and you know, on paper, I've, it's like when I look down, if I if I look at the list of artists, it even I even go like, oh, like, it's insane that I've worked with all these people over this time and you know worked on all these records. But but then I go, I could have been a lot better at, at what I do. I could have done this, this, and this. You know, I I didn't you know I I didn't need to drink that much that time. I didn't need to do whatever. <laughs> I didn't need to procrastinate then. I didn't need to wake up and sit on my iPhone for half an hour before I got out of bed. It's just little things like that. You know, I really do think the purpose in life is to be try to be better every day. And it's fucking hard to do. And so, you know, that's kind of a constant ongoing thing to try to do, you know, to just, you know, whatever it be, to set the stupidest, smallest thing you can do, whether it just be to make your bed that day because you didn't do it yesterday. That's what I was about to say. Yeah, that makes you a little bit better than what you did yesterday. And uh, yeah, it's crazy to think like that, but it th- those things all add up. And uh, when you stop cutting corners, is it, it is when you really do become a pro. Yeah, it's the compounding interest, I guess we'll say, of of doing all those little things. You know, it's like it, yes, you just become uh, you become like you know committed to just holding your integrity and whatever whatever that might be for you, whether it's your job or career you want to take or your family or whatever it is. You have to pile those little those little steps up and just get the momentum. And then once the ball's rolling, I mean, we've all been in, in times where the ball's rolling and like everything feels like nothing can stop you, you know? Oh, it's so, the best. Yeah. Yeah. You get calls coming in, like your mixes get approved on the first listen. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, nothing beats a mix one going to mastering, right? You want to just call yeah, the right. mastering guy and you're like, did you see that? It said mix one on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, exactly. Man. Well, this is dude. This has been so much fun. Do you want to? Uh, do you want to let people know where they can find you if they want to? They want to work together. Or they want to hang out. Whatever they want to do. They want to golf. Jesse will probably beat you. Uh, yeah. So my website is, is jessestring.com. and uh, yeah, you can find my contact info there. But yeah, hit me up, especially for golf. Uh, by the way, we left this out of there. I I, I don't want to gloss over the importance of golf and work. I do feel like if I could give advice for anybody who's like an okay golfer and they're coming out to, to work in, in a business like this where you're freelance, whatever it is, get better at golf. I cannot tell you how many great s- stories and opportunities that I've had because I'm a single digit handicapper. <laughs> it's, it's been one of the, it's been one of the greatest things, I, best decisions I would ever tell anybody 
is because people want to play with with people who are good at golf and i've gotten to golf with a lot of awesome people and a lot of awesome courses just because of that so that's that's uh that's one of my big tips just had get to, good at golf it had to throw that single handicapper uh statement in there <laughs> yeah i mean come on it's, it's, uh well yeah that is true man i've we've uh We've had a lot of fun golfing. I've met a bunch of people. Play, playing charity tournaments and stuff is always amazing, and you always meet somebody. But yeah, so yeah, so find Jesse, email him, text him, or whatever, and you guys can golf together. Sounds good. And then Hit make a up. record. All right, man, thanks so much, dude. This was great. Yeah, Trav, awesome, man. Good talking to you. Yeah, look forward to seeing you in person again one day. All right, yeah. All right, see you, dude. All right, take it easy, man. Peace. So that's it for another episode of Progressions. Don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. I have a room over there, and we can continue the conversation there about all the episodes that you've heard. As always, uh, sharing and uh, reviews and ratings and whatever is all greatly appreciated. It's uh, word of mouth is how we've been growing this podcast, and I appreciate every one of you. So we'll see you next week.